The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club, for which we've read one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, Antony and Cleopatra. When I was very young, I was particularly fascinated with ancient Egypt, and I thought it was marvellous that Shakespeare had written a play set there. I tried once or twice to read the play, skimming through it looking for particularly Egyptian references or to the bit with the poisonous snake. Alas, I was constantly disappointed, since this is a play full of English people pretending to be Romans talking about Egypt. So, when I was a child, I found it all rather wordy and unsatisfying. But the play has grown on me a little, since I learned a bit more about how best to approach its mysteries. This is the third of Shakespeare's plays named after a central couple. We had Romeo and Juliet early on, as he rallied against the limits of comedy and created a tragedy of love against the background of youth and civic disobedience. Next comes Troilus and Cressida, a couple that's a little older, amid a conflict that's a little bigger. And now we have Antony and Cleopatra, a little older again, and now the backdrop is a war for all the world. I have a lovely notion of the continuity within a theatre company, thinking about how the same actors would have played the same kinds of parts in successive productions at the Globe. We get a little joke about it in Hamlet, when Polonius talks about how he played Julius Caesar. It's beguiling to think that this is an in-joke for his audiences. By the same token, I've been pondering the idea that perhaps the same actor might have played Romeo and Troilus, and maybe even Antony in Julius Caesar, before returning to this character for this later play. It's tempting to wonder what the gap of a few years might have done to him. Perhaps he put on a few pounds during the lockdown caused by yet another outbreak of the plague, or perhaps the years finally caught up with him as he realised that he was no longer the romantic hero that he used to be or play. Regardless of the man playing the part, Antony himself the character is starting to feel his age. Amazingly, the play begins, and it's the only Shakespeare play that does begin so, with a negative. Nay, but this dotage of our generals o'erflows the measure. Within these few words, spoken by a frustrated Roman, we get a map of the play's ideas. It's in the middle of a conversation. As usual, Shakespeare doesn't bore us with the parts of a chat we don't need to hear. This Roman, Philo, is arguing that Antony's dotage, his infatuation with his Egyptian lover, is overflowing. It's excessive. Love, lust, Egyptian delights, all are couched in excess, an irresponsible behaviour. And that's what the play really seems to be about. According to the folio, the play is called The Tragedy of Antony. Then there's a comma. And then the title concludes and Cleopatra. The tragedy of Antony, and Cleopatra. She's an afterthought. It's his play, and she features. The number of lines spoken by the two characters might seem to bear this out. He has more, she doesn't get as many. But, and it's a big but, he dies in Act 4. She dominates Act 5, and when she dies, so does the play. Of all of the female characters in all of Shakespeare, there's none as fascinating, as difficult or as powerful as Cleopatra. Obviously, you couldn't really make a show about a Roman general being bewitched in Egypt without providing a compelling reason for his dotage. 
Shakespeare makes Cleopatra older, perhaps, than she was in history, but he fills the play with her charms, her mutability and her poetry. She's frustrating, she's changeable, she's very volatile, but she's great fun too. There are very few women in Shakespeare as powerful as she is. She gets to lead her own army, as does her rival Roman, Fulvia, and she gets to control her own death. So, it might be argued, does Lady Macbeth, but there's a sense that her world, or her husband, or indeed her playwright, cuts her off too soon. Not so with Cleopatra. If anything, her theatrical power grows over the course of the evening we spend with her, so that it feels like it's totally her play and her universe by the time it's over. The play was written just a few years after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. Here, too, was a woman who felt she was writing herself into the books of history, who resisted and manipulated marriage for fear of what it might do to the stability of her power and her kingdom. Here, too, was a woman who was aware of how famous she was, indeed, who worked actively to flood her realm with images and likenesses of herself so that she could be in the hearts and imaginations of all her subjects. When Shakespeare describes Cleopatra's public appearances, moments when it feels like even the air rushes out of the building so that it can follow her and catch a glimpse of her, it must surely have been on the minds of his audiences that they too had lived in the same city as a great queen who occasionally made her progress along her famous river. Of course, Cleopatra gets called various horrible names over the course of the play, from gypsy to whore, and far worse, by the Romans of the play. She is a foreign other, a temptation, an emasculating siren who undoes a great warrior. But back in Rome, they're fascinated, dying to hear what she might be like. Inobarbus gets one of the great speeches in Shakespeare when he describes her royal flotilla. The barge she sat in, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke, and made the water which they beat to follow faster, as amorous of their strokes. For her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue, or picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. On each side her stood pretty dimpled boys, like smiling cupids, with divers coloured fans, whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool, and what they undid, did. This passage is a polished version of the same description from Plutarch, the Wikipedia page actually gives Shakespeare's remix and the original translation by North that Shakespeare would have used. There's a very funny moment in Tom Stoppard's play Arcadia when a Latin teacher prescribes the Plutarch as an unseen translation exercise, only to prove himself a real show-off and quote the Shakespeare as a better version than his student has achieved. As for Cleopatra, everyone seems to spend the play talking about her and thinking about her, even Octavius, the main antagonist, is obsessed. At some level, you have to wonder if he feels that he needs to have her if he is to lead Rome. 
Julius Caesar, his adoptive father, and now Antony, his co-triumvir and main opponent, have both been her companions. And as his star rises, you get the sense that he wants to conquer her, whether romantically or politically. Shakespeare never lets us forget how enchanting she is. As Enobarbus himself continues, Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. This extraordinary woman would, of course, have been played by a young man. As we move into the later plays, we start to have some rather more powerful women, older and more demanding than the girls who dressed as boys in the earlier plays. Lady Macbeth, Volumnia, whom we have yet to meet, and indeed Paulina, not to mention Cleopatra, all seem to be a few steps beyond the boy players whose voices have yet to break. In an extraordinary move, after a few hours of dazzling us with ideas about this woman, Shakespeare has Cleopatra herself reject the notion of being brought back to Rome. She's aghast at the thought of being paraded as a foreign captive, for the plebeians to mock, for them to look at her. She says, Nay, tis most certain, Iris, saucy lictors will catch at us, like strumpets, and scold rhymers ballad us out of tune. The quick comedians extemporally will stage us and present our Alexandrian revels. Antony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore. It's remarkably daring. Shakespeare has the character refuse the very thing we are watching. She, Cleopatra, resents the very idea that she might be played by a young male performer squeaking before adolescence who might buoy her greatness in the posture of a whore. Would this have been met with a laugh? Would the actor have winked knowingly? We can't tell. It's one of the most strident nods towards the limits of gender in the plays and how Shakespeare himself seems to have rebelled against them. Antony and Cleopatra do an awful lot of talking in the play. Even after Antony has tried to talk his companion Eros into stabbing him and failed, he talks some more before he turns his knife upon himself. Even then, he continues talking, and he's still talking when he's hoisted up into Cleopatra's monument. This is another very strange moment. Presumably the monument was the raised area of the stage likewise used for Juliet's balcony and so on. It's written into the text that Antony, mortally wounded, remember, is pushed and pulled up to the height of the platform, and Cleopatra and her ladies help him in. At this point, he's still trying to speak, and she talks over him. They have so much to say, it overflows the measure, like the Nile, like all of their excess, and like Philo proclaimed at the top of the show. For all their talking, we get quite a surface depiction of their characters. They are types, they are celebrities, and what interests them both is how they play these roles. Cleopatra is constantly changing. She's happy, sad, angry, defiant, petulant, beckoning, always on, always fresh, keeping Antony intrigued and having to work for her. She's constantly performing for him. When they're tired or they're fighting, it takes one to say, I'll be Antony, before the other agrees that then, yes, I'll be Cleopatra again. It's as though they themselves are intrigued with the weight of their personas and their personalities. I think it's fascinating that Antony dies first. 
Throughout the play, he is in decline, as Shakespeare mirrors the more level-headed historical sequences of events. Antony got distracted in Egypt, lost control, and eventually died as Octavian seized power. It takes a remarkable actor to play Antony because of this decline throughout. He is the negative with which the play begins. This is not the rising star that dominates Julius Caesar. In this play, he's bloated, jaded, weakened and getting a bit older. By contrast, Cleopatra seems to grow and rise over the course of the play. She's the one who has immortal longings. She is fire and air, she says. Over the course of the play, she talks herself into celebrity immortality, and she does it for Antony too. Despite valiant attempts from Dolabella, one of the politicians, to get a word in, her description grows and grows. I dreamed there was an Emperor Antony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see but such another man. His face was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon, which kept their course, and lighted the little O, the earth. His legs bestrid the ocean, his reared arm crested the world. His voice was propertied as all the tuned spheres, and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. For his bounty there was no winter in it. An autumn t'was that grew the more by reaping. His delights were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the element they lived in. In his livery walked crowns and crownets. Realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. But if there be or ever were one such, it's past the size of dreaming. Nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy. Yet to imagine and Antony were nature's peace against fancy, condemning shadows quite. Antony is past the size of dreaming. He's beyond the colossus that bestrid the narrow world lamented by Cassius in that earlier play. For Cleopatra, it's only after Antony has died that she starts to speak of him in these epoch-making terms. Whether she knows or not, Shakespeare knows, and the audience knows, that after Antony and after her, Octavian will issue in a new empire. Even more important, particularly for an audience in London when the Puritan movement was starting to gain serious attention, it is during the reign of Octavius, or Augustus as he will become, that Christ is born. These two men each represent a new empire, a new world that dawns in the aftermath of Cleopatra's death. This is a play about the end of an era, the end of a regime. There's something heroic, spectacular, about how its two heroes know their time is up and how they exit. Antony is rather eclipsed by Cleopatra, who controls her death and leaves her would-be captors guessing how she died. She does not hang around, she does not try to change anything, and the world of the play, her world, in her play, does not survive long afterwards. Just as has happened with Malcolm at the end of Macbeth, and whoever you prefer to speak the final lines of King Lear, Octavian speaks the final lines of this play. These two other great plays, written the same year as Antony and Cleopatra, are ended by characters that haven't had a huge impact on the story of the play. 
Octavian hovers seriously throughout and really does drive the story as a kind of antagonist force. And of course, we all know that he likewise has immortal longings in him. But he's smart enough to know that he's seen the end of something important now that Cleopatra is dead. No grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous. High events as these strike those that make them, and their story is no less in pity than his glory which brought them to be lamented. Our army shall in solemn show attend this funeral, and then to Rome. Come, Dolabella, see high order in this great solemnity. Sometimes this play is a slog to get through. Act 4 is particularly tough going because Antony does an awful lot of shouting and groaning before he has the grace to die. By the time Cleopatra, Charmian and Iris have all succumbed, it's very late in the evening. As a result, the play needs really amazing actors. And the title couple really need to be dynamic and brilliant, and preferably famous themselves. Patrick Stewart, Rafe Fiennes and several others have recently tried their hand at Antony, but the one I really wish I'd seen was his namesake, Anthony Hopkins, who played the part in the late 1980s at the National Theatre in London. His Cleopatra was Judy Dench. For a tantalising glimpse of what that might have been like, you can find a few audio extracts from the play on Spotify in an album of speeches and excerpts from Shakespeare. If you're a fan like I am, there's also a lovely book about the production which details the entire process of putting the show on. The title tells you everything you need to know. It's called Peter Hall Directs Antony and Cleopatra. It's by Tirza Lowen, and it's a very worthwhile read. Now, before I give you anything else to read or research, I'll sign off and let you know that for next week, we're going even further back in time to the early days of the Roman Republic for yet another martial tragedy, Coriolanus. I hope you'll enjoy it, and I'll speak to you next time.